Hi, I'm Alan Knox, and thanks for listening to the Lamp and Light Podcast. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This podcast seeks to let the Bible shine into our hearts and minds by hearing the word preached. This first season is a collection of sermons from the early chapters of the book of Psalms that I preached at Crossroad Christian Church in McKinney, Texas. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So today, uh, the title of today's sermon is How the Righteous View the Problem of Evil. Uh, The problem of evil is one of those things that is uh, often used by non-Christians and particularly intellectual atheists who make the argument that because there is evil in the world, if God is all-powerful, and all loving, there would not be evil in the world. So, um, so either, because there is e- evil, either God is powerless to stop it, or he chooses not to stop it and therefore is not loving. Uh, so that's sort of how the argument flows. Part of the problem of evil is about what happens uh, when bad things happen to us. We understand that God created the world, and because human beings sinned in the world, uh, the world is under a curse. So there's death and disaster that are now part of our world. The other part of the problem of evil is that evil people sometimes seem blessed. If God is righteous and all-powerful, why do evil people sometimes become rich and powerful in this world and enjoy a good life, while some people who are righteous suffer at the hands of the evil people? So how do Christians think about this problem? That's, that's really what this message is about, what Psalm 10 is about. Uh, Psalm 10 kind of helps us understand the problem. And the idea in this psalm is to follow the progression of the writer's thought, how he moves from one idea at the beginning to a different idea, a different view of evil at the end of this psalm. So let's read together then Psalm chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for, uh, for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight, As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. 
He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, an evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline, their ear, incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So again, I want to trace the idea here, and you can kind of see how it, it begins on not just a negative note, but a note of questioning God, and it ends with the assurance that God is going to do what is right. So, uh, so I want to look then at how we should think of the problem of evil uh, as bad things happen in this world. Number one, the question of the righteous. So the first point that I want to make this morning is that it is not sinful to question why God does what He does. I mean, even the writers of Scripture, a man like David, who was, after, uh, who was a man after God's own heart, could raise these sorts of questions. Verse 1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? Maybe you're going through a difficult time right now and you're wondering, where is God when I need Him the most? I mean, I can't tell you the number of conversations that I've had in nearly 25 years of ministry with people who were going through some kind of hardship and were asking the question, why doesn't God take care of this? Why doesn't God heal me? Why doesn't God uh, fix this situation? Uh, I remember when we lived in Oklahoma, uh, we lived just outside of Oklahoma City when the Murrah building uh, was attacked and the bomb went off. And one of the books that appeared, you know, there's always kind of the books that appear that either are sort of a documentation of this thing or a questioning of why this happened. One of the books that appeared uh, was called, Where Was God at 9.02 a.m.? 9.02 a.m. was when the bomb went off. So I want you to understand that it is not sinful to raise these sorts of questions. 
God understands our questions and our doubts. He understands them so much that he inspired the psalmist to write down these sorts of questions so that we would know that God is sympathetic to our doubts. He understands that we are only flesh and blood. He understands that we are weak in our nature, that we cannot comprehend the fullness of his plan. So we should not hide from or deny our doubts. We're to, here's the key. We are to bring them to God, and he will hear and understand them, and he will lead us towards a trust in his sovereignty. But, but really, that's kind of getting ahead of myself there. Number two on our outline, the observation of the righteous. This is really, uh, if you just want to kind of keep track of where we are in the text, this is verses 2 through 11. And I want to just kind of walk through uh, some, some of the attributes of these evil and wicked people. What is it that we're talking, what are these people like? Uh, so I, I want to kind of give you a sense of what's going on in our text. First of all, the wicked are arrogant. Verses 2 and 3 says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. There's going to be a little bit of crossover between some of these attributes, but what I want you to see in this one is that there is here a sense of pride. I mean, really an unbelievable sense of pride. Uh, notice that the word Lord is all in caps, meaning that this, this is the personal name of God. So this is, this is not intellectual atheism. Even though we're going to see that this person says there is no God, it, that is not a, there is no God statement in the sense you would hear it today, where the intellectual atheist would would say, you know, based on scientific knowledge, based on the study of the world, based on philosophical understanding, I've come to the conclusion that there is no God to reckon with. This is instead a person who knows through his contact with the people of Israel and the law, knows there is a God and knows the personal name of God and says, God is irrelevant in my decision-making process. It's the person who says, I know who God is, but I don't care what he thinks. I'm going to get what I want. That is a, you know, you've heard that saying, that's a special kind of stupid. Well, this is a special kind of arrogance. Number two, the wicked oppress the poor and the powerless. Verses 7 through 10, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed 
sink down and fall by his might. So think of the image of a spider who weaves a web and then waits on the edge of the web until, until some moth or fly gets caught and then devours them. That's kind of the image that's, that's uh, being put here. I, I you know, also think of the, the phone scams that we all love to experience. Uh, but the ones that in particular target uh, the elderly. I mean, you know, you've, you've probably, if you're like me, I mean, I've ever seen this phone call probably dozens of times by now. Uh, you get the, the digital phone call, the digital voice that says the IRS is looking for you. Uh, they're, you know, uh, you know, the, they're so menacing. You feel like, you know, there's like helicopters outside of your house with guys with, you know, uh, high caliber rifles trained on you at this very moment if you don't pay up. I read um, recently in an article that there was a large arrest of these people. I think it was, I want to say it was in Singapore. Large, uh, they arrested a large group of these people who were invo- involved in this particular phone scam. But the interesting thing was, before they were arrested, they had made millions of dollars on people who fell for that scheme. Now, we understand that most Christians are not involved in businesses that do that sort of thing. But there are some Christians who commit ethical and even legal violations in order to make more money. So we have to realize this is the sort of thing that the Bible looks at as being wicked. Uh, Number three, the wicked ignore God. Verse four says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Verse 11 says, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. And again, this is not intellectual atheism, which really started in the 19th century. This is practical atheism, living as though there is no God. The person who has grown up uh, being taught that there is a God, but who does not let that belief influence the way he lives. It does include intellectual atheism, the person who doesn't believe there is a God and so therefore rejects biblical teaching. So there's a sense here in which those who are wicked, uh, whether they believe in the existence of God or not, whether they believe in the God of the Bible uh, or not, they just ignore God. I mean, this is one of those things that is becoming more and more prevalent in churches today, where people believe in God, confess there is a God, believe the Bible is the Word of God, believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and yet live exactly like people who aren't Christians. Number four. The wicked act as if they are God. 
Verse 6 says, He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Now that may, that may sound kind of extreme. Is this, I mean, this person is essentially saying, uh, I, I'm not only going to have a good life, but I'm going to have a long life, into generations I will live and prosper. It may sound extreme, but it is not uncommon for people to act as though the only moral authority that they must answer to is themselves. James 4, 13-16 speaks to us about this. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So that means a lot more than just saying, you know, when you have a decision coming up, well, if the Lord wills, then we're going to do this. It means to conduct your life as one who is under the authority of God. That ultimately, um, your free will is subject to, to the will of God. That is to say, I mean, you, you make the decision, you decide to go to such and such a place, you, you decide what you're going to do when you get there. But for the Christian, there is always a sense in which we recognize our decisions as being subject to God's will. I mean, you can read a lot of the stories of the Bible. God has a whole bunch of different ways of Making people do something else. When they, you know, think about the story of Jonah. Uh, when Jonah, when God says, "Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh," and Jonah, of his own free will, says, "I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go the exact opposite direction." God has a pretty unique way of getting him back on track. The earliest form of a submarine inside the belly of a fish. The point is here that not all people are this way, but as a Christian looks around and sees the world, we see people who are full of evil and act this way. And then number five, and and sort of why this is a problem. The wicked are prospering. This is the real problem that, that some of these evil people seem to be winning. I mean, it would be one thing... If as soon as you did an evil act, your life fell apart, then we'd feel like, oh, you know, there is no reward for being evil. But sometimes it seems as though these people get away with their evil deeds. Verse 5 says, his, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. Now that phrase is a little weird, he puffs at them. Uh, But I think it's sort of the the equivalent of he blows them away. In other words, he is completely not threatened by the people who are opposed to him. 
He has so much wealth and so much power and things are going his way. He is in control of situations. So when somebody says, I'm going to get that guy, he just blows them off. And the idea of the first part is that not only is that his ways prosper at all times, the psalmist is at a point, or I should say the evil person is at a point where Again, it's not that he believes there is no God. He just believes that God's judgments are far away. In other words, God's not going to catch me doing anything. God's not watching me. I have nothing to worry about. And for, for a Christian, this, the, the whole point of this is to say, <coughs> as, as Christians, our questioning God, that we see in the first verse, is based on the observations that we see in the world around us. So the psalmist, if you think about it from his point of view, he starts out saying, God, you know, where are you in all of this? And then he says, I ask that because I have observed the world and it, there are not only some wicked people who ignore you, who, who have, you know, have no interest in being submitted to your law, they are attacking the poor, they are greedy, they are arrogant, they are their own moral authority. But, the, but the, what causes the question in verse 1 is the fact that these people are getting ahead. They're doing well. They have a good life. They're in good health. I mean, you know, if, it was, if we lived in a world where as soon as you did an evil deed, you broke out in hives... Uh, then again, we, it, we, we could say, well, you know, you, you should have known better. You know when the evil people do evil things, hives break out. But not even, we don't have even that. It just seems as though things are working out for these folks. That leads us then to the prayer, number three, the prayer of the righteous. So as you see wicked people getting away with these sorts of things, our response, we question God, why is it this way, God? But it leads us, as we, as we see the world as it is, well, let me say it this way. I believe that a Christian should be intellectually honest with God. When you see things in your world that don't make sense, You have doubts in your mind. You, you don't deny it. You don't say, well, you know, I mean, I, you know, as a good Christian, I should never have these sorts of questions in my mind. The psalmist has these questions in his mind as he sees the wickedness of the world. But what he does about it is the key. He prays. Verses 12 through 15 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper to the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. So when we find 
cases where evil people are getting ahead by their wicked deeds, we understand that this is a contradiction to our worldview. This is, in other words, this is not how the world should be under God's rule. But rather than denying God, we call out to God for justice. We pray declaring who God is and calling Him to act in the unjust situation. So I, I don't mean to make this simplistic, but I want you to get this really clear in your mind that you know, we look at the world and we see the world in this particular way. We see that there are evil people in the world who get ahead by cheating, by running scams, making millions of dollars. Uh, sometimes they get caught, but sometimes they don't. We look at the military dictators over a country who oppress the people and rob the nation blind and, uh, and, and you know, just have a, a life of luxury. And sometimes they're overthrown by an enemy. But sometimes they're not. And we say to ourselves, this is not how a world that is under God's rule should be. And so we come to God and say, God, why is that? But you notice the prayer is, Lord, you are the one who helps the poor. You are the one who, who, who rules over this world. So break the arm of the wicked, which is just simply a way of saying, make it so they can't do more evil. We pray to God for justice. I think as a Christian's, and, and Christians in America, for us, our perspective is unique because we know that there is um, corruption in our government. That's not to say every person in our government is corrupt, but there is forms of corruption that take place in our government. Uh, but if you ever travel internationally, especially to a third world nation, um, I think you would come back with a better feeling about our country because there is just uh, corruption everywhere. I mean, there, there are African nations where, uh, it, I believe Nigeria was this way, it probably still is this way, but uh, when you travel through Nigeria, there are certain checkpoints that you have to go through, military or police checkpoints, as you're traveling from city to city. And the expectation of the guards who work those checkpoints is that you will bribe them. I mean, it is from the top all the way to the bottom. Uh, it, there's a lot of corruption there. So when you see that sort of thing, and for us as American Christians, as we look at our government and we see aspects of our government that seem unjust and unfair and unrighteous, we should pray to God for justice. We pray for leaders who will not be corrupted by the power that they possess. Uh, we pray for judges who will be impartial in their decisions 
and follow the rule of law. We pray for uh, congressmen and senators who would write laws that are just and fair and righteous. That's how we should pray for our nation. And then finally, number four on our outline, the confession of the righteous. Verses 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I want you just to notice the movement from doubt to observation to prayer to finally confession. The statements in this last two, uh, three verses really are about a declaration of who God is. Those who love and trust and honor God do not ignore the problem of evil. They do not deny the problem of evil, but they do respond to it differently. When doubts and questions fill our minds because we observe evil people who seem to get ahead through evil deeds, then then the righteous pray for God to do justice and they confess that God is just and the ruler of the world. In other words, a Christian always has a forward view. We don't deny the reality of evil in this world, but we do look forward to a day when God will bring justice into the world. This is because we know that God is completely just and completely powerful. Or to say it another way, a Christian looks at the problem of evil with the eyes of faith. So when someone does something evil to you and they seem to profit from it, do not seek vengeance. Do not seek to even the scales. Quite frankly, you only make a bad situation work worse. Uh, instead, don't seek vengeance. Instead, seek God. And trust that God's justice will eventually be manifested. Sometimes quickly. Sometimes slowly. And sometimes at the final judgment. But we can rest assured that according to who God is and what God does, every evil deed will be accounted for. And that, I mean, quite honestly, that is why we're so thankful for the gospel because we know that we have a share in the evil deeds of this world. There are evil people who do some incredibly evil things. But all people do some evil in this world. The gospel tells us that Christ died for the sins of those who will trust in him. And that no matter how much evil we have done in this world in the past, 
that today we can turn to Jesus, receive Him as Savior and Lord, be saved from the coming judgment, means that Christ's death on the cross is payment for whatever evils we have done in this world. And we can be saved. So even our evil deeds, they're not forgotten by God. They're just covered over by the blood of Jesus. God is righteous. He is powerful. And one day we will see the fullness. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lamp and Light Podcast. If you want to be updated when new episodes are available, make sure you subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review so that more people can find this podcast in the future.